Hello, I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast. As this episode goes live at the end of January 2024, it's only the second episode of Season 9 broadcast. I'm sorry about that, as I was hoping to start the year with an increased frequency of episodes, and it is going to pick up very soon. I've been having to spend extra time working on the delivery of the manuscript for my new book on folklore and Scooby-Doo, which is just about to leave me for the publisher, so I'm sorry that it's encroached a little on the start of this season. Hopefully, you've also been listening to episodes of our storytelling podcast, Stories from the Hearth, which have also been releasing through January, and this has been keeping you going. If you aren't up to date with that, you can find all of the episodes on the Stories from the Hearth section of the main Folklore Podcast website. Or you can subscribe in your favourite podcast app by searching for Stories from the Hearth, a Folklore Podcast production. Oshling is the Irish for dream or vision, and it may take the form of a vision poem. The genre was developed as a part of the wider Irish-language poetry field at the end of the 17th century going into the 18th. More broadly, Oshling is a vision which is said to connect the seer very strongly with the landscape and the identity of Ireland and its sacred sites. Our guest today, author Jeremy Shavey, is considered to be connected in exactly this way. He's the founder and the creative director of Enchanted Journeys and has been leading sacred site retreats and conservation-based ecological and mythological trips for many years. As a Shanaki or Irish storyteller, he keeps sacred stories alive through music, myth and meditation. In 2017, Jeremy completed 21 years of study in Celtic alchemy and traditional ecological knowledge, and he now helps other people with their own similar paths of discovery. He's a certified herbalist and a record keeper of traditional Celtic ecological lore. He shared some of this and spoke about his new book, titled Oshling, with Tracy Nicholas. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm here today with Jeremy Shavey, and he is the author of Ports of Entry and the very soon-to-be-published Oshling, Discovering Keys in the Irish Celtic Mysteries. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me out, Tracy. So to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and all of the many, many things that you're involved in? Oh, yes. Happy to. <laughs> so... Um, by trade and education, I am a professional ecologist. I work with sensitive habitats, at-risk communities, um, and indigenous communities around the world, uh, mostly in North America, but also throughout Central America and Europe and the Middle East. Um, as a part of being able to travel with a lot of the work that I do. I'm, of course, exposed to a lot of different cultural traditions that are essentially people living in harmony or in concert with their their environment. And so I, with a bit of a background in anthropology as well, I always have an interest in 
entering a space respectfully. So trying to have an understanding of the cultural, spiritual, religious, um, culinary, et cetera, et cetera, of wherever I'm going. Sure. So that's kind of backdrop. Um, I'm also an applied mythologist. And so as an applied mythologist, I'm very interested in not just the relationship that people have with their mythos and with their spirit and with the land around them, but I'm really interested in engaging with it in a really rich way. So how that's folded out in the world that I habitate and what I do professionally, I'm a writer, I'm a musician. Um, as a professional ecologist, I'm working both on conservation planning as well as regulatory environmental work here in the United States. Um, and uh, I also lead international retreats, journeys, and pilgrimages around the world. So those are kind of the my ports of entry, if you will, where I find access and am able to put the skill sets that I've been able to garner, harness, and refine over the years to work. And it seems like you've put all of that into Ashling. Um, and and kind of everything that you do seems to be really part of this book and infused through the book. So I do have to ask you, why did you write Ashling and why did you write it now? Beautiful. Um, so I was called to write this book initially because I had been bringing groups of people to Ireland on retreat. I've been doing it for 10 years now. I'm getting ready to move into the 11th year of doing that. I uh, lived in Ireland for a while, uh, six months in 2005 with my family. So I had the opportunity to live in a 350-year-old thatched cottage and like really be in the living landscape and communicating with other wisdom keepers in Shaunakee of the region that I was in, in Central County Clare. Um, but when I when I was first starting to bring people to Ireland, uh, I noticed that, again, there's almost like this sense of like, there's such a similarity, Northern European country, Western European country, mostly people from the United States and Canada coming from me, there's sort of like this, this assumed that we're very similar. And there are loads of similarities, but the Irish worldview especially when it's more connected to the land and to, and to traditions, um, is very different than our very boxed off secular world here in the Western Hemisphere. There's not a separation of nature and spirit with uh, God and the earth, with deity and with physicality, like everything is intertwined and so i realized very quickly that after bringing people there for years that a lot of a lot of the deeper inherent relationship fellowship communion that can be had with place while it can be picked up very easily intuitively but there was always this hunger for more i can only say so much to a group and if two or three people hear it nobody else does and the people are asking later i realized you know it's almost like People needed, uh, I hate to say it in this way, but it's true. It's almost like an idiot's guide to coming back to Ireland in a respectful way. Not just like, oh, we're going to drink Guinness and we're going to go into the pubs and we're going to go kiss the Barney Stone. But like, how are we going to enter 
into the motherland of Ireland in a sacred and respectful way. Right. Yeah, I think that a lot of people in America hunger for that because there is a lack of connection to feeling like, you know, you you belong to a space and you're connected to the land where you are. Um, and so I, I can see where a lot of people would really, um, you know, want to do that, want to, to do, you know, a pilgrimage like that. So that's really fascinating. Um, now, we've been tossing around the word, the title of your book, but can you talk a little bit about what exactly is an Oshling? Yeah, so Oshling is, a, is an Irish rank ale word that literally means vision or dream. And so much of my life has been guided by Oshlingi or Oshlings, dreams, visions, uh, dreams specifically of places that I thought were in my internal landscape and actually ended up being places in Ireland or the Isle of Man or in Scotland. And so my first time going to Ireland, I was able to meet a woman that helped me to stitch those together, Shania de Barca. She is a keeper of many of the ancient, especially the Neolithic and early Iron Age sites and megalithic sites in Ireland. And so I would dream and I would call her and be like, Sinead, I'm dreaming this. And she'd be like, oh, that's, I can tell you where that is. Like, come on over and we'll, we'll go and, and have a place. So there's like this interchange of what the Irish would call the second site. This, and for many different people, it shows up in different ways. And it's not necessarily something that someone can control as much as allow. And when it comes, it comes and you just prepared for it. And so dreams and visions. So the title of the book honing in on dreams and visions is that here are these platforms, here are all these different angles of looking at the beauty and the mystery of Ireland herself, whether it's through uh, the ancient mythological tales, whether it's through the, the early Christian mysteries, whether it's through the almost more animus, sacred, physical locations and the 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 respectful relationship that the Irish have had with is in perpetuity. Um, so the book is showing all of these different angles to allow the reader to, as I like to say, hone in on the Irish Celtic lens. So like mm -hmm. when we look through a particular lens, the world becomes shaped a certain way. So it's almost like an opportunity to refine, to train not only the mind, but the heart and the intuition. Mm -hmm. um, so the essence of the book really like tracks that. Here are these amazing, you know, like here's how traditionally perhaps people connected with caves or the sea or the islands and what they represented. And here's an invitation on what you might find therein. Right. And and I can see in the way that you structured the book how you, you do look at different aspects of, you know, you, you talk about the history. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the structure of the book and and how it came together in the way that it did because I really enjoyed the the journey that you took me on when reading it. 
Yeah, so the the intro is very open and refined, almost this like invitation. It's an invitation to to the dreaming, to be open to the dreaming. I don't think that many people in the modern age, while we might be conceptually encouraged to follow our dreams, it's how do you how do you make your dream more fit some sort of reality where you can build a living off of it and as instead of how do you live based on your dream Mm -hmm. and so that intro really springs and like almost is like this reach out to other people who are also having those dreams and having those visions or having that calling like my celtic heritage is calling i don't understand it like and yes there's tons and tons of information out there but so much of it is either academic or channeled you know it's just like here is an opportunity just present again from an applied mythologist and applied ecologist perspective here are these just very tangible items soil water islands rock history etymology linguistics like all of these are these gorgeous layers that give us an opportunity to again refine that lens to mm-hmm. enter in and so some people get really excited like people who are reviewing the book right now some people get really excited about the couple of chapters on the history and and mythological cycles mm-hmm. and the maps and all that kind of stuff some people are going to read those sections and be like eh, you know but it does provide a really important context why are there all these abandoned ancient buildings all over yes. ireland why are these why are they find still finding I mean, they found like, I think it's up to like 160,000 archaeological and sacred sites in Ireland, which is about the size of Ohio. I mean, it's amazing how much is there. So like some people are going to find their doorway in in various places. And so what I'm serving through the book, through these different uh, through these different angles is an opportunity to connect. And hopefully then Aaron herself Ireland, Ireland can then find that door to communicate and speak to someone through their own dreaming or through intuition. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely appreciated the the history at the beginning to to give that context, um, and it really brought a very um, human experience perspective to the history, which you don't often get, which was very nice for me. I do think that I connected a little bit more with the later chapters that were about, you know, goddesses in the different areas, um, which was very fascinating to me. But that's, you know, just like you said, the way that I connect, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, So let's talk about some of what your actual content is in the book. Um, Can you talk about... uh, you, you said earlier, you mentioned wisdom keepers. Can you tell us a little bit about what wisdom keepers are and why storytelling is so important culturally in Ireland? Yeah, I, I mean, and I, I, not just in Ireland, but, you know, with many of the Celtic people and really many indigenous people. But in respect to the the Irish, the continuum of the oral tradition is a very strong one. I mean, of course, the... Irish heritage, the Irish 
archives, if you will, of ancient documents that are available to the modern seeker, the modern scholar, the modern dreamer. There's it's in, there's so much available, mm -hmm. and so the the heart of the the journey of a wisdom keeper, I think, I think is in many traditions, there are going to be beings who are going to represent certain bodies of knowledge really well. So I, as a Shauna Key of the Iris traditions, am a keeper of the interface of mythology and ecology. How do in sort of piggybacking off the, the, the 19th century works of, uh, P.W. Joyce's names of places like a true name, an ancient Irish name that like carries and conveys the essence of a place and and then combine that with the dreaming like this is a particular angle within which we can come. Storytelling is another type of wisdom keeper. I think the, the word that I hear utilized most frequently that I really associate with is Shona Key, which essentially means uh, wisdom keeper or, or old old knowledge mm -hmm. um so it's a purveyor of traditions a purveyor of a lineage of information that's being passed down it's not again something that's been channeled or something that um you know is just flying off the cuff it's a learned yet at the same time making room for spirit to come in to give guidance to bring in the second site and to know how to wed those together so a lot of the shauna key that i'm connected with in ireland of course have a very strong relationship with physical place so they might be uh lore keepers storytellers uh musicians who in a particular region around Lauer, around dingle or around uh colonia kyber savine like different parts of ireland where they have a very strong relationship with the place that's constantly informing the evolution of the, the lore that they embody and that they can then help to transmit, whether it's through storytelling, through music, or through saying, Tracy, why don't we walk up this mountain? And when we walk, you know, there, there's a certain way we're going to walk. We might sing some songs. When we get to the top, we might circumambulate while we're doing certain prayers you know like here are some way you know like and that may be a tradition that i have helped to promulgate and pass down through the lineage and it might be that then you go meet with Sinead out in dingle and she take you up a very similar mountain and it'll be a completely different approach because she's conveying other song other tradition other lineage forward and it's all an invitation to connect more deeply. Wow, see, now I really wanna do that. <laughs> it, it feels like that's something that's missing from my life uh, because there's not that much like that, you know, in the US where I live. And I think that it sounds like such a magical experience to go immerse yourself in something like that, in a journey like that. So. I'll have to maybe I'll have to uh, see the next time you're you're doing a pilgrimage because <laughs> that's yeah that's we're doing great. a week long uh, Shauna Key immersion in Sligo this coming summer July 11th to 18th so 
feel free to join us. Yeah, it, it sounds fascinating. I'm definitely going to look into it. Um, okay, so can we talk about just a, a few different kinds of offerings that you can find? Yeah, so, you know, there's always like the study, the beastuary studies and the, the various um, ways that we want to speciate other world beings and Ashleen is like, to me, I think the most important angle, and I might curve this if this gets too, like, if I start sound like a politician here, just round me back to where you want me to be. <laughs> but what what I would offer is that an Ashleen, a true Ashleen is a vision or a dream. It's something that almost, it forms a relationship with us. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be like an angel. It can be. Okay a stream that literally you just keep finding your feet next to or your hands in. Um, it can be so, a resounding voice. It can be um, there's strange moments. Like I just had a friend two days ago come by and he had told me he had just uh, put this ascended master back up onto his, onto into his meditation space. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was like looking all over his house and storage rooms for the book that he read when he was 19 and, basically hitchhiking across Asia and um, couldn't find it. And then that night he was at a gathering of musicians and this woman said, oh, I've had this book of yours for three years and just puts it in his hand. Wow. So it's like those kind of moments are when the Ashleens are showing up and inviting us or when we're not thinking about things too hard, like, okay, show me what to do now. It's more like, okay, I don't know. I'm going for a walk. I'm walking the Camino. I'm going for a run. I'm going to go climb a mountain. And all of a sudden, all the tangling of the mind unravels itself and the answers make themselves very clear. Um, so I think that's probably the most, the way that I would answer the question. I think, you know, if in terms of like derivative to that is thinking about like the different ways culturally, um, especially post uh sort of puritarian uh, English invasion settlements, plantations in Ireland where many of the ancient traditions started to become kind of like shadowed right. and something that we're, we're not seen as good anymore. Um, that there is kind of a speciation. There's leprechauns and there's the she and the ice she and there's you know the dobraku and like there's all these different beings who are almost like minuscule or diminutive aspects of a sacred sense of place that give people an opportunity to connect with oh there is something out there i keep seeing it out of the corner of my eye or i keep hearing it at night or i keep sensing it when i dream so it's kind of like any spiritual experience. It's going to come to you in a way that's meaningful based on the, you know, cumulative experiences, you know, culturally, personally. And, and so when it, it, that, that experience happens for you, it's based on everything that makes you who you are. Yes. The filters that we have, the f- faith and intuitive understanding that we have Mm -hmm. and yes 
I very strongly feel, I mean, many of those who have gone before us have said that, but they will show up, the gods, God, the angels, the she, they will show up exactly in the way that can be communicated with you, that can get your attention. Right. And sometimes that means showing up as something that you're, oh yeah, I'm familiar with this white being, giant, tall, big wings, like, okay, angel, she, you know, it, like I'm familiar with that. And so you've got my attention. Or it could show up as something completely contrary to really get your attention. Like, oh my gosh, this giant hydra just turned into the Mother Mary. Oh, the evolution of divine feminine, like moving from one cultural norm to the other. Like, oh my gosh, like I couldn't have created that. Right. But right. my filter understands it. And I was just taught this very deep lesson, a lesson right. of translation. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think about it when I'm thinking about the different ways that people look at, you know, deities, for example, right? There's a lot of different names, but in a lot of ways, it's very similar when, when you're thinking about, you know, religion and spirituality. Like, basically, most of the message is, don't be a bad person, right? right. And there's a lot of different ways to say it. But when, you know, people are like at odds about their different deities and which is the right one. I think of it as I think of relationships with other people, right? Like I have a brother and he is uh, a father. And so his kids call him dad, right? And I call him John. And so them calling him something else doesn't matter to me because that doesn't define my relationship with him. So if someone is wanting to pray to Jesus or, you know, wh whoever they're going to pray to, it doesn't matter to my connection with spirit. And so I always right. wonder about why people get upset about that, because it's all just a different way that we personally view what our connection is to that greater spirit or the land or, you know, what what have you. Yeah, I frequently, or at least recently, have been thinking about it a lot in terms of language. Like here we are speaking in English, which is an empirical language. Thus, it is understood around much of the world because of it is being an empirical language. And so many things can be expressed in this language. And yet, sometimes, while I'm not even close to fluent in Spanish, sometimes I dream in Spanish because it is a second language. So, and the way the world looks through Spanish, although another empirical language, is different. Then you get into uh, indigenous languages, the Gaelga, Irish, you know, like Cherokee. Like here are languages that are very much connected to physical place and how you would describe something in one language. While you can translate that, mm -hmm. it doesn't convey all of the same meaning. So the right. essence inside of it all, like you, similar to what you were just saying there with calling something a different name, it's like the essence remains the same, but the 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 angle, the relationship, the the worldview is completely different. And so, generally, that's where I go when I see people getting so, especially institutions, get so fixed in the need for it to be one language, one way. Right. It's about control and power and the channeling of resources. Right. I mean, I think that language, I mean, words are really just a shortcut to a concept, right? Yes. You know, if I say cat, that's just us both being able to think about that particular animal. I might think about, 
you know, my cat, and you might think about a completely different kind of cat. You might think of a, you know, a, a, a big cat, a predator, but it's still essentially around the same concept. And so any cultural differences are going to have those nuances that really, and, and you, you see sometimes, you know, people try and explain individual words like we don't have a word for this in english and it's you know a big long paragraph trying to get that nuance but you never really do do you no so now earlier i had said that i was really interested in the uh parts about the different goddesses so i'm going to ask you about that because i want to hear a little bit about it from you directly can you talk about some of the lesser-known goddesses in Ireland, and just tell us a little bit about a couple of them? Yeah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start a little abstract, and then hone it in. Okay. Because this goes this ties into what we were just talking about. Great. I frequently will use an image when I'm when I'm teaching on this particular subject. Um, I'll project an image of a uh, like a crystal. Mm-hmm with white light coming into it, and then the crystal fractals it into the various wavelengths of light that we know as the rainbow. Right. And from this perspective, like the divine god, goddess, let's fractal it down from the one into male and female, if that's where people want to go comfortably. Like as it comes, as it, as it hits the crystal, as it hits us, as it moves through us, various bandwidths of that light are going to speak more loudly because of our own particular experiences. So I like to frame things from the perspective of there are access points, fractals of the one, fractals of the light that become illuminated within a particular region, possibly because of geology, ecology, partly just language and culture, Partly, we got to think back thousands of years ago into the megalithic, neolithic, and early Bronze Ages. People were so far apart that it was rare that there was much interaction and mixing going. So you and I could divine, like anchor the same sound. You know, say we both like, okay, on Saturday night, we're both going to tune in to the seventh ray, and we're going to turn it into one word and sound, and we might get something very similar. But then our experience as we're landing it into this physical reality, it might start to take on more shape, or we might start to associate it with other things that we know culturally. Mm -hmm. So that's the angle that I particularly like to come from, is that, you know, so Ireland has these four ancient kingdoms, or, you know, now provinces, or I don't know, they're not called provinces, but let's just say these four ancient kingdoms, and each of them was an amalgamation of all of these chiefdoms as we've moved further into history into these larger kingdoms, and then further into history, this amalgamation of these four kingdoms, and then the tie-in to, again, the one. And so each of these four kingdoms has their own relationship with a sovereign goddess of the land with the divine feminine. So um, in Kanakt, we have the Morigu, the, the great queen, more great um, re, queen, uh, king, queen, royal. Um, in the southeast, we have Brigitte with, uh, in Leinster. And in the southwest, we have 
Anya, and in the northeast we have the maca. And these beans are known throughout antiquity, all the way way back into the the dawn of the Celtic peoples, that these essentially were the representation of the earth, of Gaia, of the embodiment of that which is sacred in the earth. Uh, and so each one thus then connected to that particular part of the physical landscape. Now in academia here in the 21st century, we have access to so much more information, so much more rapidly. You know, there, there are people that are tracking things out like, well, maybe it really originally was the Moragu or Anya or Danu or these various other aspects of the name of the divine feminine that are the original and that the others are derivatives of this. I don't know that we'll ever know that. I believe that in many cases, what we're looking at here is conjecture. But what we do know from the Irish archives is that, yes, there are these four ancient kingdoms plus the sacred kingdom at the middle or me, central, that or me, that um, all have their sovereign aspects of the divine feminine. And so whether they were derivatives of each other or fractals of the one, like that's all conjecture, but so you know, that's my particular relationship with them is that, you know, it's a white, it's right. the crystal, hits us as a filter and then becomes more complicated and hopefully doesn't turn into the Gaza Strip and Palestine and et cetera, you know, where people right. have their differences and like, I name it this thing, I name it this thing. All right, therefore we're going to fight, you know, like whatever. Yeah, and I suppose it depends, as we were talking earlier, it, there is an aspect of, you know, you're, you're, where you are, you're going to focus on the things that are most important to you, right? Like, right. you know, in ancient times, obviously fire was important to everybody because you're going to stay warm that way. You're going to cook your food that way. But then if you get to different areas, other things might be important, like something that is, you know, fertile farmland, you might have different aspects of your deity that are important to you based on the fact that that's what, you know, is sustaining you. And if you're in a mountainous region, it might be different. Yeah. And it might be, you know, similar to uh, what was found when when Europe first came to the United States, you know, to North America. Right. And didn't even recognize the the type of land stewardship as management because they were used to farming as clearing fields instead of, you know, we create an occasional fire so that we have a canopy of nut bearing trees that produces way more protein and flour than we could ever produce by doing all this extensive labor down here on, on the earth. So Right, right. And even the very concept that, you know, owning land was something that, you know, was brought here. Um, and was not a part of the native cultures that were here. And so it's it's definitely that there was a relationship that the indigenous people had in North America with the land that was, you know, it, again, it was it was changed and altered in such a way that, you know, so much of their culture was destroyed because of destroying their ability to have that same relationship with the land. Right. It didn't didn't match with the cog of the, the machine, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And that was obviously a terrible part of history. Um, so I did find it very fascinating when you talk about some different megaliths. And 
Do you have any that you're particularly drawn to yourself? Yes, for sure. I th there's a few that jump out in my mind right now. The one that the one in particular is is called the Grange Stone Circle. It's at Locker and County Limerick. So Locker is the sacred center of Munster, the southwest of Ireland, so the seat of the Anya, the the ancient sacred and secular center of that whole region. And this particular stone circle is massive. And they brought stones in from all over the region. So it's not just like, okay, we popped up some of the limestone from the area. While it is predominantly limestone, they brought in basalt and granite and sandstone. And like in these stones are laid out in this really beautiful fashion. And it's a very different stone circle than most typically people typically think of a stone circle where it's, you know, standing stones and an open space all around and this this actually has an earthen mound that comes up to the stone so then it's almost like the standing stones are in the ground but it was mounded to the stones instead of digging down okay. um archaeologists have shown that there was all sorts of ritualized patterns and paths um, beneath what is currently the the sod and the earth when i first started going to the site 20 years ago the stone circle is also then ringed by a, a, a grove of gorgeous ancient trees. Many of them are still there, but over the years, you know, a few have been hit by lightning, a few just the heart, you know, rotted out of them and they went back to the earth and then they were cleaned up. Um, but this particular site just has such a gorgeous acoustic. So I'll, I'll take my groups and sit in the center there and we'll do some journey work and I'll play music and just the way that the sound pitches off the side some uh some reconstructionists and archaeologists as well as people from the new age that are seen have have believed that this was not just like a stone circle for ritual but that there are probably other larger community events that happened there some people say maybe ritual theater or some people say that maybe they even had did something like the, I mean, because, you know, thinking that cattle to the ancient Celts and still in many ways is like the form, a measure of wealth. And so part of religious and spiritual gatherings, of course, would be the showcasing of cattle. And so it's believed that it's possible that sometimes there were some of the cattle were driven in there. And, you know, so all sorts of other really sweet exchanges. But I think, again, that the thing that I feel that most people track the most there is just this deep, deep sense of well-being, belonging in place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. The other stone circle that comes to mind right now, which is more of a classic style of Irish stone circle, and we're not talking like Stonehenge or even the Grange stone circle. This is like the predominant stone circles in Ireland typically have like five to seven stones. So they're pretty small. You might be able to fit, you know, 10 or 12 people holding hands around them. So the uh, the stone circle at Inchiquin Park or Inchiquin Lock, um, it, it's called the, the um, Rulock Stone Circle, is so magical. I mean, there's one, there's a sentinel standing stone, which is one that's a standalone stone. It's called a sentinel because it's like the guardian. Okay. Um, and so it, it, so you've got your circle of stones, and then you've got this other like outlier stone. 
Uh -huh. um, and so this particular sentinel stone is like three and a half meters above the ground. So, you know, in respect, like the stones that are in the circle are very much like human scale. I mean, you and I couldn't move them together. It would still take, you know, 20 people to be able to move one of these particular stones. But you've got these stones that, um, you know, you can you know, wrap yourself on, put your hands on. There's even an indention in the middle. So sometimes people will lay down in the center while other people are holding space around the circle on, on the outside. But that sentinel stone, like I just... Every time we get there, people are just like back to the stone, stone align the spine. Um, yeah, so the Iraq stone circle is is definitely one of my favorites as well. It sounds amazing. Yeah. So before we wrap things up, what else would you like to share with our listeners? Well, I think the heart of it is very similar to why I spent all this time and energy writing this book is the encouragement for the listener to track out their dream, track out their heritage and do so unabashedly. I believe that those deeper dreams are an invitation from outside of time, from the angels, from mm -hmm. the divine, inviting us to align our lives in a way that's not only going to be the best possible alignment for Tracy or the best possible alignment for Jeremy, but is the greater, is serving the greater harmonic, the greater beauty unfolding, the deeper peace that paradise just on the other side of the veil here on this planet is inviting us to be an emissary for. Right, right. That's beautiful. Yeah. If we make our little corner of the universe better, we make the collective better, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's beautiful. So can you tell our listeners how people can find you, find your books, um, and, and where they can learn more? Sure. Yeah, so we do have a website. It's enchantedjourneys.com. Enchanted is spelled with an I, not with an E. Partly that was, it was completely by design because it was like song is such a part of um, what we share. Um, mm -hmm as a community, as an organization, and, you know, for myself as an individual. Um, so enchantedjourneys.com. And so a lot of our um, retreats, programs, um, both in person as well as online, are listed through there. Uh, I also always invite people to reach out via our contact page because we do a lot of events that are free service events in the region and other parts in, in the Southern Appalachian Mountains here, as well as other parts of the United States that are um, free services that people come out to. Sometimes, you know, it might be 100 people, sometimes three or 400 people, like really sweet, sweet gatherings of the heart. Um, so those can be found out via the, the contact. Uh, the two books that I have out, uh, Ports of Entry, um, can, well, Ports of Entry can be found anywhere on the uh, the interwebbings. I mean, I think there's probably like 20 distributors, including uh, Jeff Bezos. I mean, Amazon um, <laughs> are promulgating. Um, you can also buy the books directly from me through the website, which is always wonderful because I actually get almost the full cost of the, or the full price of the book instead of like 25 cents or whatever. But um, <laughs> so, you know, so a lot of different ways that that book can be purchased. Uh, uh, Ashleen, uh, discovering 
keys in the Irish Celtic Mysteries can be pre-ordered via Crossed Crows um, website. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if that's something that people have a hard time finding, you can always just reach out via the Enchanted Journeys contact. Um, and then I can direct somebody with the link or somebody on our team can help. Right. Depending on when link. people are listening, they... Yeah. Yeah. So otherwise, I'm not on a lot of social media. I'm on Facebook rarely. We do post some of our free um, uh, services and, and, and events on the Facebook. And so those are things, you know, again, something like the Feast of Beltana or the Feast of Imbolc or things that people will come from all around the country for. Um, the, um, the, other, the other social media platform that I'm on is LinkedIn. Um, and that one, um, you know, of course, is, is more professional based, but I do right. uh, make a lot of announcements about things that I'm doing through that page as well. So, but yeah, not on the Instagram, not on any of the other things that I've never even heard of that people are using these days. And part of me really enjoys just being in the analog and the biolog- biological. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you on that. Okay, well, thank you very much. This was very interesting. Uh, we appreciate you coming on the show with us. Thank you, Tracy. I enjoyed the conversation as well. Oshling, Discovering Keys in the Irish Celtic Mysteries is published by Crossed Crow Books with a release date of February the 20th, 2024. You can find more information on their website at www.crossedcrowbooks.com. I'll be back soon with some more fascinating guests and some episodes of my own, including a look at the emerging folklore surrounding the Chicago rat hole and other similar road motifs. So if you've spotted something unusual on your highways and byways, send me photos at thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com and maybe they'll make it into that episode too. Don't forget... If you appreciate what we do, you can help us to keep doing it with a small donation via our website, or, even better, by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast, which will also bring you extra exclusive content too. Thanks for listening. See you next time.